Today's episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a broadcast from March of 2019 with my guest Richard Gurgle, author of The Blinding of Isaac Woodard. A new PBS special based on this book will air on SCETV beginning March the 30th at 9 p.m. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Richard Gurgle, who has written a new book, Unexampled Courage, The Blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard and the Awakening of President Harry S. Truman and Judge J. Waitis Waring. It's an incredible South Carolina story, almost forgotten in the past, but it has had a certain resonance here in the 21st century. So, Richard, with that introduction, welcome to the journal. Delighted to be here. First of all, where did the title come from? In Briggs versus Elliott, the brilliant dissent of Judge Waring in the Briggs versus Elliott case referred to the plaintiffs as showing unexampled courage. Those are the folks who took incredible uh, grief from their local community to having stood up and served uh, as plaintiffs in that case. And he referred to them as showing unexampled courage. And I thought he captured really not just the plaintiffs, but many of the, of the active players in this remarkable story. In your last chapter, I don't want to give everything away, but you, you give other examples of tremendous courage in South Carolina in the 1940s and, and 1950s, into the 60s, but particularly in that decade or so between the end of World War II and the start of the Civil Rights Movement. Correct. It just and it, it is a whole group of individuals. Some of them we names we know, but then others are people whose names have long been forgotten and who were the really foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement. And they suffered, and their names have been long forgotten. And I thought part of this story, the Isaac Woodards, the George Elmores, and others, they deserve uh, their names being recognized for their contributions. Anybody who dissented from the system in the 1940s and 1950s was asking for trouble. Correct. Um, the segregationists viewed any dissent from Jim Crow to be an existential threat to segregation. So they they came down on, with both feet on anyone who challenged this. Judge Waring was their nightmare opponent because he had a life tenure as a federal judge and he had U.S. Marshals guarding him. That was kind of a tough guy to be fighting and he had the power of, a, of the federal judiciary behind him. Let's kind of go back now and start at the beginning. And who is Sergeant Isaac Woodard, and how does this story begin? Isaac Woodard was a native of Fairfield County, South Carolina. He went into the service like 900,000 other African Americans with uh, obviously many millions of of white soldiers and served overseas during World War II. Uh, He was um, a decorated soldier. He was a sergeant. He had obviously won promotion. He obviously had leadership skills. And on February 12, 1946, he was coming home after three years in service. He was in the Asian theater. These were very tough uh, uh, area of, of battles. He was, an, he was uh, a long, basically a longshoreman unloading uh, 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 battleships under fire. That's where he got his battlefield decoration. And um, he was um, heading home to his wife in, in Winsboro. Uh, on the way home, on a Greyhound bus, he got into an exchange with a Greyhound bus driver when he asked to, the opportunity to step off the bus to relieve himself. Uh, the rules of Greyhound at the time were that that should have been accommodated. But instead, the um, bus driver uh, snapped at him to go back to his seat. He didn't have time. And to his surprise, Isaac Woodard snapped back at him, speak to me like I'm a man. I'm a man just like you. And at the next stop, which was Batesburg, South Carolina, the bus driver, now not particularly concerned with time, goes off looking for a police officer to have Isaac Woodard removed and arrested. And that's what happened. So when he went into police custody, there's some controversy about the specific circumstances. But what is not controversial is that he was beaten so badly with the police chief's uh, blackjack that he was blinded. And that police chief, Linwood Shull, was later prosecuted on the direct order of Harry Truman by the United States Department of Justice for the deprivation of the civil rights of Isaac Woodard. Uh, That's part of the story of Harry Truman entering this. I'm glad to share that story in just a moment. And then the trial is before Judge Waring, an all-white jury, acquits the police chief, 
Judge Waring is constantly stricken by the unjust result and sends him on a journey of study and reflection that makes him one of the champions of civil rights of that era. So it's, it's a remarkable story. Well, I think for a lot of our younger listeners, I want to go back to the traveling by Greyhound bus before the days of interstates. And having done that as a college student, there were rest stops. But if you were African-American, they might not necessarily be one in the bus station. Oh, oh no. I think that if you, when you're an African-American of that era, 1946, and you want to step off the bus, you're going into the woods. There really is going to be no accommodation for you. And they're stopping in little towns like Ridge Springs. He's asking to stop during a, a stop, but there, there are no public accommodations probably for anyone in most of those towns, and certainly not for an African-American. Again, I'm just thinking an old Greyhound bus, no bathroom, uh, no air conditioning, and of course the African American had to be at the back of the bus. Correct. And this was a group of so- mostly soldiers, black and white, who were coming back. They had just re- been released from then known as Camp Gordon, Georgia, near Augusta. And um, they were, um, as the story goes, they were probably sharing a bottle, passing around. These were uh, soldiers, black and white, who had just been uh, released from the Army after service. And they were in sort of a jovial mood. And they were probably mixing with each other in a way that the bus driver and uh, white South Carolinians would not have been particularly comfortable. All of the troops at that time were wearing a a pen, which showed that they'd been honorably discharged. Correct. It was not quite a decoration, but it was something that certainly Woodard was wearing. As he had multiple medals because yeah. he had been decorated, yes. Yeah. There's a very disturbing photograph of him on the, the front of your book. He basically has two eye patches. And one of the things I found fascinating is you were able to dig up medical records that prove that he wasn't just hit upside the head. This had to be a deliberate act. Um Let's set up the, the, the story here. The police officer said that Woodard had attacked him, which seems an improbable thing for someone to have done to a white police officer in Batesburg. Well, that's fair, a fairly common accusation. Right. That he, he was under attack, and he hit him just once. And he's bilateral blindness. He's blind in both eyes. And I um, had uh, I spoke to a forensic pathologist, Dr. Kim Collins, about this. She is one of the nation's renowned forensic pathologists. This year, she's the national president of their organization. And she happens to be the wife of my colleague, Judge David Norton. And I said to her, is there a way, uh, Dr. Collins, that I could um, definitively prove how he was blinded? She said, get me the medical records, and I think I can give you a definitive answer. So um, then United States Attorney Bill Nettles had heard me tell the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard, and he always said, boy, I'd love to be part of whatever you're doing. And I called him up and I said, now is your opportunity. I need help with the Veterans Administration to get the medical records of, of, of this soldier. And he patched me into the general counsel's office of the Veterans Administration, told the story, well, and it eventually led to me getting these records. Okay, but the actual records when he was treated, wouldn't they have been discarded by this time? Correct. They are. I thought the normal record retention um, uh, policies of the VA, they wouldn't exist. But I was having hope this was a somewhat unusual situation. He had applied for disability. He had. This has been, a, at the time, was a case of considerable national notoriety. I hoped that somewhere those records might exist. And the good fortune was they were. They were in a disability file. And once Dr. Collins had those, she was able to give a definitive opinion as to the cause of uh, of his blinding, which was, as you described it, a deliberate strike to both eyes. How did this case kind of blow up into the national consciousness? Well, initially, Isaac Woodard, was, after he was blinded, he was taken by the Batesburg officials over to the VA hospital and sort of unceremoniously left there. And um, they quickly determined he was had nothing that they could do for his blindness because it was irreversible because of the degree of trauma. And this story soon percolated through the Columbia Civil Rights community, and eventually James Hinton, the head of the NAACP in South Carolina, um, was told the story, and he sent John McRae, someone you will certainly know, who was a uh, editor of the uh, Lighthouse and Informer, the African-American newspaper of the day. He goes out there to interview him, and he comes back and says, you're not going to believe this story. And he prepares a detailed memorandum, which I have, and he sends it to the NAACP national office. It becomes a sort of cause celeb of the NAACP, but more importantly, 
in a meeting in September of 1946, Walter White, who was the preeminent civil rights leader in America at the day, uh, shared the story with President Truman. And uh, President Truman was horrified. Radio was the, the medium of the day, and it hit the airwaves. Yet Orson Welles, who was probably the most remarkable uh, radio talent ever, perhaps, uh, he is famed for that, and of course he's also a celebrated movie producer and director, he featured the Isaac Woodard story on his national radio program on four successive weeks, and it, it created sensation in the civil rights community at the time. Well, when the when the story first broke, there was some incorrect information. They had the assault taking place in Aiken, and the folks in Aiken were not very happy. Understandably not very happy, because Orson Welles said the price of a black man speaking uh, in Aiken was to lose his eyes. Uh, you know, they, they took understandable offense at that. Well, if I remember what you, you said is that there was an Orson Welles movie playing, which was shut down. Uh, they burned the, the movie, the movie posters, and all that. It, it was, you know, Aiken had a a, a strong reaction. But and, and let me say this: um, Orson Welles did not check out the facts, and he should have done that. He was very embarrassed. NAACP was embarrassed that they were part of this. But within a couple of weeks, they had figured it all out that the town was Batesburg. They knew somebody had blinded him. They just didn't know quite where it was. In, in fact, did not the NAACP go on the trail to track down exactly? Where it was, they hired a private investigator. Both both the NAACP and Orson Welles had private investigators in the field, and eventually they got the whole story. I, I mentioned the misidentification of Aiken because there was a protest song written by Woody Guthrie called "The Blinding of Isaac Woodard." There's a line in Aiken, South Carolina, the driver he jumped me out, but Guthrie premiered it in a stadium with thirty six thousand people there, and it was broadcast. Later in life, uh, Woody Guthrie would say it was the, his greatest um, response he ever got in singing a song, was singing that song at the uh, benefit concert for Isaac Woodard in New York in August of 1946. And so all of a sudden, this has come to the national attention. But the meeting in the White House, I think, is absolutely crucial because it did change the direction of the federal government in terms of civil rights. One day following... Uh, being t- share, the learning of this story, Harry Truman writes a letter to his attorney general. He tells him the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard and tells him, we've got to do more than just prosecute. We have to do something to get at the root causes of these problems. Now, people might wonder, well, why did Harry Truman get so upset about this? I think two things. One is he was a World War One veteran. Somebody had mistreated a, a veteran. But in his career in back in Missouri, he had something of a record as helping civil rights. He, he definitely, you know, people think about these big city machines. He was part of the Pendergast machine. And people, you know, think about, oh, that's just a bunch of corrupt um, fellows who are by a gang running a town. Well, no, they, they like served their immigrant communities is what they did in these communities. That's why they were so strong. And a key constituency of the Kansas City Pendergast machine were African-American voters. Harry Truman, recognizing uh, where his support was, was a strong supporter of civil rights, uh, notwithstanding sometimes his own personal views about this. Um, he, he never got over the idea of sort of social equality. He never really was able to address that. But he believed deeply in what he would call political equality, and that included that um, every person should be able to vote, um, have a job, get a job without discrimination, um, have a fair trial before a fair judge. I mean, he believed these things, and he believed them quite passionately. Doesn't seem like Attorney General Clark jumped to the task very quickly. Well, actually, there are two things that happened. Um, President Truman sends a letter, and three business days later, Linwood Shull is charged in South Carolina with violating the civil rights of Isaac Woodard. So that happens pretty quickly. Shull is... It's the sheriff. It's, no uh, kin to the current mayor of Batesburg. Absolutely not. He's actually the police chief of the city. Police chief. The town of Batesburg. How did he get charged in three days when I thought you had to go through some kind of... Grand jury and all. Grand jury and all. Well, uh, this, of course, is um, uh, uh, this period. Uh, Harry Truman is aware that there are a number of racial incidents. You mentioned this earlier. Uh, Walter about um, African-American veterans being um, abused. And there were some very ugly episodes around the South. 
and grand juries were convened, and FBI went into a number of these communities. And when the Isaac Woodard story originally emerged, the FBI went in and investigated this story. But frankly, the FBI was not very enthusiastic about uh, civil rights cases, particularly cases against white police officers, because the FBI worked very closely with these local police officers. So they had done an investigation. They didn't think much of the case. They, they, they were pretty dismissive. They were trying to prove that, that, Shull, that Linwood Shell had not done anything wrong. But they got a direct order. It went from the attorney general to the uh, to his uh, deputy attorney general, and the deputy attorney general's on the phone with the United States attorney for South Carolina, Claude Sapp. And three days later, charges are brought. Now, normally, as you again correctly point out, you would go to a federal grand jury. Well, in the South, they were having trouble getting any federal grand jury to charge any because, white person for some civil rights violations. Grand juries were all white because the voting rolls were all white. Grand juries were all white. So, but if you didn't, if you charge the um, person with a, a misdemeanor, you didn't have to present it to a grand jury. So it was a it was called an information, which is like a, essentially a criminal complaint filed in court, and the individual is charged. So Linwood Shaw was charged with the violation of the civil rights of Isaac Woodard, which was then a misdemeanor. All right. Is this under the 1875 Civil Rights Act? Correct. Exactly. And there are two versions of it. One, one statute, which was which was a felony, uh, had some real uh, legal difficulties now, 70, 80 years later, and, and the Supreme Court's rulings suggested that there was not enough um, notice of a potential violation. There were due process issues. The misdemeanor statute would, did not have that problem, and it was used in a few places around the South, particularly because they, they, they couldn't get grand juries to indict anybody. So that's how it happens in three days. Uh, the um, formation of the Presidential Committee on Civil Rights and the, the desire of Truman to do something more and to appoint a presidential committee is in that same letter about Isaac Woodard. This meeting is in September of 1946, and in December of 1946, the committee is formed. So it's actually pretty quick, quick and in January of 47. Truman meets with this committee. It's a remarkable group of individuals they select. They don't pick any segregations for this committee. They only pick people who are believers in civil rights. And by October of that year, um, the committee has issued this this groundbreaking report called To Secure These Rights that listed a series of important recommendations for ending Jim Crow in America, the most important being the integration of the armed forces of the United States. Richard, we need to pause for a moment, yes. let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Judge Richard Gurgel about his new book, Unexampled Courage, The Blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard. I think most people know about the uh, desegregation of the armed services. That, that's those, Anybody who started in the Army knows it goes back to uh, his executive order. One thing he did was undo what Woodrow Wilson had started. Basically, that is correct. He is undoing another Democratic president's uh, actions. By desegregating the civil service. Hugely important. The armed services, yes, but the civil service, if anything, was more important. Well, both of them, at the time, of course, the military is the most um, revered institution in America. This is right after World War II. And Truman was relentless, as my book describes, in enforcing his order, and he insisted on full integration. There was no half-hearted event here. And within a couple of years, virtually everyone serving in uh, in the military is in an integrated unit. It's remarkable. And the success of, of that, by 1953, uh, the Army has, Department of Defense has prepared a report about the successful integration of the armed forces, and a, uh, and a copy of the draft went to the justices before Brown versus Board. This idea that you you could desegregate successfully was proven, uh, and and I say in the book that the integration of the armed forces was the beginning of the end of Jim Crow in America. At at this same time, in early 1947, Truman speaks to the NAACP annual meeting, something no president had ever done before. You could get fired in South Carolina if you were a black teacher and you were a member of the NAACP. You could be fired for that in, in 1947. And here's Harry Truman speaking to the national meeting at the at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial to several thousand present and millions on the radio because all four major networks carry it live. No, no one had ever delivered a talk on civil rights to such a large audience. And the speech is truly remarkable because what he says is, it used to be that, that we viewed government to protect us from the government 
we now need to have government protect the people, all the people. And that was a restatement of the purpose of government. It was a fundamental shifting. And people sitting there that day were stunned that this habit, former haberdasher, machine politician, would be the, the president who would mark America on a different course. Congress didn't respond very well. Of course, at that time, until the 48 elections, uh, you, you're dealing with a Republican Congress. Correct. Which he runs against. He actually calls them back into session. It's a great and, move, brilliant political move. The Democrats had held Congress from the time Franklin Roosevelt's election, 1932, until 1946. They win the, the um, House and Senate for two years. And they are just giving Harry Truman the dickens. He's running for um, election in 1948 against um, the governor of New York, um, um, Dewey. And Dewey has a very progressive civil rights record and realizes that these returning veterans, black and white, particularly the white veterans who are, of course, in the South are voting, they want educational opportunities, housing opportunities, and so forth. So uh, Truman's proposed all of this. So Dewey thinks he's go- he'll just co-opt these issues by um, endorsing the Truman um, platforms. Well, Truman recognizes there's an opportunity here. He calls the Congress back to adopt Dewey's platform. <laughs> and then when they don't do anything, and of course he knew they would not do anything, uh, he went on the, on the whistle-stop tour and called them the Do-Nothing Congress. And when we talk about a whistle-stop tour, there were actually over 300 stops. It's amazing what he did, over 33 days. You know, the the prediction of all the political pundits was that Harry Truman was going to get trounced. This is the Beltway, folks. Right. This is the Beltway. It it was over. Everybody, the big debate in Washington was over who was going to be in Dewey's cabinet, right? That was, it was, everybody was over there or had already counted him out. He goes to Detroit on Labor Day, and 100,000 people show up for this this thing in a, in a football stadium. He then gets on the road. He had he goes across Iowa, which, which was Republican, and there would be more people at every stop than lived in the town. No one had ever seen a president. And he did this for 33 days, and by the time he got to California, he told his people, we're going to win this thing. And he didn't speak for that long. They were literally whistle-stop 10 to 15 minutes, and you described when I think it was in Davenport, Iowa, he spoke, and then at the end, he introduces his wife and his daughter. daughter. Uh, People you know, loved it. People just down, just down home folks like you. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what. And he and he goes to Texas, and everybody said, "Man, you got you got to win Texas." And he had huge crowds in Texas. You know, the view is that the Dixocrats won the South, and then Truman won elsewhere. Harry Truman won eight of the twelve Southern states. He won Texas. He carried every county in Texas. Well, and he had great help from his friend Lyndon Johnson. He did, and Sam Rayburn. Yep. And he, uh, many of his advisors came to him and said, Harry, you need to back off this civil rights uh, agenda. We, 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 we're just getting all kind of trouble in the South. And he would not back down. He refused to back down. Um, Sam Rayburn never minced any words. And you've got a fabulous quote about Dixiecrats in Texas. Sam Rayburn, the legendary Texas congressman, observed that those Dixiecrats are as welcome around here as a bastard at a family reunion. Yes. Only Sam Rayburn could tell. That was Sam Rayburn. So that's the Truman story. Of course, he's reelected, wasn't supposed to be. He won the popular vote and the electoral vote. Right, over two million um, um, popular votes. Then when he has a Democratic Congress, his agenda pretty well gets stopped in terms of civil rights. Uh because so, of the seniority system. So what he so he does is he uses his power as executive as executive and he plows ahead on uh, the two major areas he works he works on number one is he implements the integration of the armed forces which was fiercely resisted by the army. He insisted on it, the full integration which eventually uh, he accomplished. And then he began filing amicus briefs in the United States Supreme Court in civil rights cases which had not been done before. That had been a recommendation of his civil rights committee. In every case, the Truman administration filed the amicus brief. That's the friend of the court brief in support of plaintiffs and civil rights cases. The Supreme Court voted 9-0 in their favor. And that culminated, of course, in Brown versus Board of Education, which his administration had filed an amicus brief in its last days, saying it's time for America to move on. Supreme Court votes 9-0. 
Richard, we probably need to remind our listeners that the reason he couldn't get things through Congress is because of the seniority system. White Southern Democrats chaired most of the powerful committees, certainly the key ones like Judiciary. And And there was an unholy alliance between the Southern Democrats and conservative Republicans, and they were able to bottle up anything, particularly the United States Senate, because of filibuster rules. Well, I want to jump back to the Shoal trial here. I think when I said the government didn't react too well... You're referring to the prosecution itself, and you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. And Claude Sapp had been a very powerful figure in the National Democratic Party. Actually, many people considered him a progressive for, relatively speaking... And he was, I think, he was the Southern floor manager for FDR in the 1932 convention. He was a major player. Uh, Well, yeah. He actually went around before... 32, he was establishing Roosevelt clubs all in the South. I mean, he was... Uh, and he was, as a legislator, he was a progressive on, on public education. He was an advocate of public education. But he was not an advocate for the civil rights prosecution of a white police officer for the for the um, uh, violation of the civil rights of a black soldier. But he, but he was directed to do it. He had a direct order from the Attorney General of the United States to bring that prosecution and he did it without enthusiasm. Well, well, I mean, you've got documents that he's telling people he's not going to bust anything to, to prosecute well, this case. And, and this comes up with some of the, um, you know, every, everybody, every historian uh, who's trying to work on something would like to find documents that have not previously been discovered. And as I've tried to, to figure out this story, um, I knew from my job as a federal judge that every federal prosecution has an FBI file or invest some criminal investigative file, and it has a prosecution file. So I went to the Department of Justice, and I said, do you have the files from the prosecution of Linwood Shaw? And we ran that down in the National Archives in the back of a warehouse and found those files, and they revealed a really unpleasant story of the efforts of Claude Sapp to scuttle this um, prosecution and the efforts of the FBI, the local agents, to block the prosecution. That prosecution was a snake pit. There was no interest at all. They were on an order from the president to prosecute, and they did it, we can say, with a, a, not much enthusiasm. The judge in this case is Wade Waring, but he's not supposed to be the judge. And One of those great ironies of history. There were three federal judges in South Carolina at the time. Uh, Judge Weichup in Greenville, uh, Judge Timmerman in Columbia, and Judge Waring in Charleston. They mostly had sort of regional assignments. But Judge Timmerman hated civil rights cases. He he was an unreconstructed segregationist. And he could sense already that the U.S. Supreme Court and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals was going against his views on race and justice. He didn't want to get reversed. So what he did was he all the civil rights cases that came to him, he transferred them to Waitis Waring. But didn't he, in this case, he claimed he conflict of interest, he was kin to somebody? Well, he lived in Batesburg. He knew Linwood Shaw. That was probably more legitimate than some of the others he passed on. But, uh, but yeah, he did not want to preside over civil rights cases. And the ir- ironic effect was that Judge Waring got essentially all the civil rights cases and changed the course of American history as a result. Before this case, Waring had heard black teachers arguing for equal pay for equal credentials. Not challenging segregation, just wanted um, Plessy, right? They were they wanted separate but equal. They wanted the equal part because we all know, and from your f- fabulous work, Walter, you know this, it was separate and unequal, right? And so the, the litigation strategy was uh, separate but equal. So in 1944 and 45, Judge Waring ruled for plaintiffs in teacher cases It was notable because district judges, those are the judges down at the trial level, generally would not rule for plaintiffs in civil rights cases, and you had to go to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court to win. Apparently, Waitis Waring didn't get the memo, and he rules because there was very strong Fourth Circuit um, precedent in favor of the teachers in this situation, written by John J. Parker, the chief judge of the Fourth Circuit, the most respected judicial officer in the South. And he was revered by Southern judges. He had written a very courageous case in 1941, and Judge Waring intended to enforce it. He greatly admired Judge Parker. That was the first case, but Judge Waring's background is hardly that of a progressive. He was a mainstream Charleston patrician. You know, we we, we try to treat these folks like um, they, they must have been a bunch of wealthy people because they, they had been here eight generations. And the Warings at one time were very prosperous people. By the time Waitis Waring was born in 1880, 
his father was struggling to maintain a middle-class lifestyle for his family. Uh, they were uh, people of, of a great deal of pride, but not many financial resources. And everything about Waring screamed privilege. He wasn't going to rock the boat, and then he did first with the teachers. But that was just that was just the that beginning. was that was you know the teacher thing was not particularly controversial because he wasn't challenging segregation or Jim Crow. He was simply enforcing the separate but equal doctrine. Yeah, so he didn't that didn't get him in trouble. People didn't criticize him. Uh, but when he started in 1947 issuing the order in Elmore versus Rice to allow African Americans to vote in the Democratic primary, then the only election that mattered in the South, that's when everything hit the fan. He he was vilified. Uh, he was probably the most reviled person in the white South at that point. And it was the Shoal trial that, that woke him up. You have a wonderful quotation from him. The jury went out and... He told the bailiff, I'll be back in 25 minutes. And the bailiff said, it's not going to take that long. He They'll said, be back in five minutes, Judge. So he goes and walks around Columbia. He walks downtown to Columbia to the state house and comes back to the federal courthouse. And They're the, banging on the door. They're banging on the door to get out. <laughs> but he wasn't going to have them come out and say a verdict in five minutes. The indignity of that. And and he, his wife is there. Elizabeth is there in the trial. She leaves the courtroom in tears. That night, he's in Columbia trying the case. That night, they go, he goes back to the hotel, and both of them are just horrified with what they had just seen. Neither of them had ever given much thought to race and justice issues. It used to be thought, oh, well, she was a closet integrationist. Uh, she had no more interest in these issues than he did. But this trial made them, they couldn't avert their eyes anymore. They had seen the reality of what this ugly system actually produced. And they were transformed. Neither one of them ever saw the world the same again after that trial. After the Shull trial, it's as if Wade is wearing becomes a totally different person in the courtroom. Well, he first does it privately. They come back to Charleston, and you, there's nobody in Charleston they can talk to about this. You can't talk to other white people about race in 1946 in Charleston. So what they undertake is a private st- self-study. And they began by reading books together. And the judge would come home at, n- at night after a day in court, and Elizabeth would read him a chapter from a book out loud. And then they would get in the car, and they would drive around Charleston. They loved to do that and talk about what they had just read. And what books did they read? W.J. Cash, Mind of the South, uh, Gunner Murdoch, An American Dilemma. These are hugely important books at the time. And by the time Judge Waring had finished the 1,400-page book, American Dilemma by Gunnar Murdahl, there was no turning back. And then he starts issuing these decisions. When you discuss Elmore versus Rice, which is the voting... Voting rights case. Uh, the judge and the attorneys for the plaintiffs did a lot of sidebars. I mean, they don't do that now, right? No, um... The um, uh, you know, Elmore versus Rice, just so we can set up the the case, is a challenge to the, the to the denial of African Americans a vote in the South Carolina Democratic primary. That should not have really been an issue because the Supreme Court um, had already issued a case, the Texas case, the Texas case, several years before that was clearly made these unconstitutional. South Carolina was unwilling to comply and went in and repealed every state law relating to primaries and then claimed there was no state action. Uh, Judge Waring was completely unimpressed, uh, and he, uh, his f- famous order ends with a statement that it is time for South Carolina to rejoin the union and to adopt the American way of conducting elections. Well, Apparently, the segregationists were not humored by that suggestion, and there were efforts to change the party rules, and the change of the rule was that you, the African Americans could vote in the primary so long as they pledged themselves to support segregation. And a new lawsuit was filed. This one has been long overlooked, Brown versus Baskin. Judge Waring summons the entire Democratic Executive Committee, 93 members, to his courtroom in Charleston on an emergency hearing. And he tells the, um, those executive committeemen, the most powerful men in South Carolina, that a person in contempt of a federal judge's order, has, a judge can do two things. He can issue a fine or impose incarceration. I want you to know if you violate uh, my order again, there will be no fines. 
And as a result of that, this sullen group leaves furious at Judge Waring. And this is when uh, a cross is burned in his yard, when bricks are thrown through his living room window, where the U.S. Marshal Service gives him 24-hour uh, protection because there are reliable reports that they're going to efforts to assassinate him. And, and generally, you know, the segregation were throwing everything at him. But they couldn't do. They couldn't. They couldn't get to him. He was. He had life tenure as a federal judge. He had a United States marshal guarding him 24 hours a day. Um, he was there, and he had the power of the federal judiciary behind him. He was their nightmare for undoing Jim Crow, and that is exactly what he did. Now, the case in which you refer to as the sidebar is certainly one of the more interesting developments uh, in this remarkable story. The NAACP had a remarkable run of success in the courts using Plessy versus Ferguson, the separate but equal doctrine, as a sword against segregation. They said, okay, we'll accept separate, but you got to make it equal. And they were bringing very successful lawsuits, equalizing um, all aspects of, of government resources, figuring that ultimately the South could not afford equality, and well, it would eventually back out. Of course, in South Carolina, that's how we got our first sales tax. The whole, that whole, I came exactly out of, precisely out of Briggs versus Elliott. Well, Judge Waring wasn't enamored with that strategy. He thought they ought to straight up challenge school segregation, get it over with once and for all. And that was, that was not the strategy of the NAACP. They saw this as a longer-term battle over maybe another decade or two. And the last place you would have a resolution of this problem would be in small rural communities like Somerton, South Carolina. They were going to go graduate schools, which they had one in, to colleges, to high schools outside the South, to high schools in the South, in the major cities, and ultimately rural the rural areas. This was a generation away. Judge Waring had a classic Plessy versus Ferguson case, a Briggs versus Elliott, involving the profoundly unequal schools in Somerton, South Carolina. And um, Thurgood Marshall was the lawyer. He, this was a sure winner. He was, this was easy. The schools were so profoundly unequal between the black and white uh, schools. Well, on, the, the, on a Monday, they were to try this case in which they were surely going to win. On the Friday, they have what we call a pretrial conference. I have them in every trial I have, where um, uh, the lawyers come in and deal with prelim- any preliminary matters that need to be addressed. So Thurgood Marshall arrives at the federal courthouse in Charleston on a Friday, ready for his trial that Monday. And when he arrives, um, the marshal says, the judge wants to see you in his chambers. I'm sure Thurgood Marshall thought, my God, what have I done, right? <laughs> He's brought into this office and the door is closed behind him, and it's just Judge Waring and Thurgood Marshall. And Waring says, Thurgood, bring me a straight-up challenge, frontal challenge to segregation. I don't want to try any more Plessy cases. And Marshall says, Judge, it's on our agenda. It's just not tonight. Pretty cool response. And this is not the case. This is not the time. What he meant was, this is a dangerous place for plaintiffs, little rural community to be challenging school segregation. Waring says, Thurgood, this is the case. This is the time. Then Marshall, trying to persuade Judge Waring, this was not a prudent strategy, said, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals will reverse you, Judge. He says, oh, no, we're going to convene a three-judge panel since you will be challenging the constitutionality of a state statute. We'll have to convene a three-judge panel. He said, well, Judge, we'll lose two to one. He said, you will lose two to one. But an appeal from a three-judge panel skips the Court of Appeals, goes directly to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's automatically on the Supreme Court docket. And he said, Thurgood, that's where you want to be. And Marshall looked at him and realized this was brilliant. This was a singularly brilliant strategy. Great minds all across America have been trying to figure out how do you untie the Gordian knot of segregation in Jim Crow based on Plessy versus Ferguson. And who was it but a patrician judge from Charleston, South Carolina, figured it out. Richard, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, 
and we're talking about Judge Gargill's new book, Unexampled Courage, The Blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard, and The Awakening of President Harry S. Truman and Judge J. Wadis Waring. And that last part of the subtitle is what we've been discussing for the last few minutes, yes. the awakening or the inspiring, whatever you want to call it, of Judge J. Wadis Waring of South Carolina. And he um, orchestrates this case. There's just no question about it. And one of the common questions, which you raised just a moment ago, was, you know, was this something that would be normal? Well, I will tell you today, nobody could get in my chambers and talk to me privately ex parte like this. But that wasn't the practice in 1946. Things were very casual. When I started practicing law in 1979, I'd go to a small town to get ready to try a case. I'd go back to the judge's office, and there would be my opposing counsel with his feet up on the judge's desk. You know, I, I, this idea of you know keeping the judges and the lawyers apart—that's a much more modern development. Uh, so um, uh, I will say it was, I'm sure, astounding to um, Thurgood Marshall to have Waitis Waring basically tell him bring the real case. Um, but it wasn't just that Waitis Waring was pushing Thurgood Marshall. His executive secretary, his boss, Walter White, was pushing him. And there were school children who had walked out in Prince Edward County, Virginia, demanding integration. And the Virginia NAACP was saying, these kids are demanding the end of segregation. So he was getting it. His strategy, which had, you know, which was highly successful, he was just the momentum of the civil rights movement was just demanding a frontal challenge to segregation. Well, Judge Waring is say, do this, but you've got those African-Americans back in rural South Carolina in Somerton, um, just outside Manning in Clarendon County. and One of the poorest counties in the United States at the time. And if their name goes on a case that's challenging segregation, then they're going to have the squeeze. They're going to lose their job. They'll be kicked off their farms. Nobody will buy their cotton. Uh, they can't get loans. They're, all their all their debts get called. All those things happened, by the way. Um, uh, and um, and uh, when Marshall left, he agreed that he would he would bring the frontal challenge. But there was a small detail. He had to get the consent of his clients to do that. And he sent Robert Carter, his top assistant, who would later be a federal judge in, in New York, and he sent him down. He says, tell those people that there'll be no shame if they don't wish to go forward because they could face retaliation. And he wasn't going to have everybody – he wasn't going to have a situation where they later quit on him and after he had brought this major case. So they met at the Liberty Hill um, AME Church down in uh, Somerton, and Robert Carter told him, he said, we think it's time to make a frontal challenge. But there could be risk, and there could be danger. And the, Mr. Marshall told me to tell you there will be no shame if you don't wish to go forward. And an elderly African-American gentleman stood up in the back row and said, we've been wondering how long it would take you lawyers to figure out this. They were all ready to go. And they did not back down, and none of them quit. And this is where Judge Waring later used the, the phrase, unexampled courage. These, the, the plaintiffs have shown unexampled courage in standing up in this case, because he knew they had experienced severe retaliation as a result of their participation in the lawsuit. In the Briggs case, in his dissent, because it is a two-to-one vote, he's right on that, uh, Judge Waring uses a phrase which would appear in the Supreme Court's decision on the, in the Brown case. Briggs became a part of of that. One of the four cases that make up Brown. Yeah. So he, um, up to this point, uh, the battle in these civil rights cases, these separate but equal cases, was you would examine the particular dispute, say school funding, and you would look how, how much are they spending on desks and how much are they spending on teacher salaries and on buildings and so forth. And, they, and these fights would go on interminably. You would just, you know, they, they, you would never be a resolution of these cases. You'd win one and you'd have to fight the next school. And it was very fact intensive cases. Judge Waring said, we're on a fool's errand here because segregation mean, is per se unequal. It is per se a violation of the American Constitution for government mandated segregation. And he, that language is what ends up in Brown versus Board of Education and redefines American justice. So here it is, this judge in the District of South Carolina from Charleston, the, you know, the, the place where the Civil War began. Here was this judge who defined our, our escape from the clutches of Jim Crow. It's, it's a remarkable story. In all, there are 14 judges involved in all the cases that come up 
um, under Brown. There are four cases that make up Brown from Topeka, Kansas, from Delaware, from Prince Edward County, Virginia, and from uh, South Carolina. And then there's a fifth case that is called Boiling versus Sharp, which is for the District of Columbia. Fourteen judges are involved in all those cases. Not one of them took the view that Wade is Waring took, which was that even if the facilities were equal, uh, segregation violated the 14th Amendment. And of course, that's the holding of Brown versus Board of Education. Well, I was thinking about when you said challenging it on the basis of Plessy, you have to go school district by school district. And in the 1950s, there were almost a thousand school districts in in South Carolina alone. You you would fight it forever. It would never be over. So things change. And South Carolina is a contradiction to a lot of folks. I mean, I, I think, first of all, about the tragedy at Mother Emanuel and then the reaction within the state to that, something that people thought would never happen, did happen. And in the little town of Batesburg, the mayor, who, when he found out about the blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard, he was horrified. Right. It, it, the way this, this sort of story unfolded was that in my um, relentless pursuit of evidence, I wrote the town of Batesburg a Freedom Information Act letter asking for all records relating to the arrest, prosecution, and conviction of Isaac Woodard for public drunkenness, which was the, the way they covered up the beating and blinding by charging him and convicting him of public drunkenness. And I asked for those records, and um, I put it on my personal stationery. I wasn't trying to use my judicial office in any way associated with this. And um, uh, within a couple of days, I received a call to my office from the town attorney. And he says, Judge, it's not every day that we get a Freedom of Information Act request from a federal judge. (laughs) And I said, well, I wasn't trying to be a federal judge. I was trying to be a historian pursuing a project of my own. He says, well, I grew up in this town. This is the town attorney, Chris Bradley, telling me, Judge, I grew up in this town. I'd never heard of this story. So I Googled it, and I was amazed. So I called my dad, who had been the mayor of Batesburg. He had never heard of the story. He read it on Google, and he went down into the basement of the town record room and found these records for you. Wow. And that began the town's discovery of this horrible event that had occurred on their street by their city police chief. So I called Mr. Spradley. I said, you know, as an old trial lawyer, I always want to walk the place where the accident occurred. Can I come over and walk the town with you? Because there's some things I've been there before, but I'm not quite sure where certain things are. He said, come on over. And on a Saturday morning, my wife, Belinda, and I, and my dear friend, Joe Anderson, United States District Judge from Columbia, met in Baseburg, and there was uh, Mr. Spradley meeting us at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. And with with him was the mayor, Lancer Shull, who I had not previously met. And we walked the path from the place where Isaac Woodard came off the bus to the place he was beaten and blinded to the place in the town jail that night where he was thrown. And as we walked it and reconstructed it, I could see the mayor was deeply moved. He was visibly upset about this. And he asked me then, what can we do now to make this right? And that led to a series of actions by the town. One of them was the uh, the town attorney, at the behest of town council and the mayor, went into town court and reopened the case of the town of Batesburg versus Isaac Woodard and reversed the conviction, expunged the conviction of Isaac Woodard. And secondly, the town decided to erect a historic marker to the blinding of Isaac Woodard. And several weeks ago, the town held a ceremony um, in which town council members and the mayor participated, which uh, honored Isaac Woodard. And his uh, nephew from New York came down and spoke. It was really quite a moving ceremony. Richie, would you like to, to add anything about Isaac Woodard and his family after the initial national, I don't want to say celebrity. but he, the, well, he did. He he was sort of a civil rights celebrity at one point. He traveled the country uh, on a nationwide speaking tour. He was a pretty articulate fellow, and he was a survivor of, uh, of this horrible event, and he was quite a witness uh, to the uh, barbarity of Jim Crow, and he did travel the country. But within a few years, the story faded, and uh, he struggled. There was a, a quirk in the in the law at the time that since he had literally been discharged from the Army five hours before he was blinded, though he had not yet arrived home and was still in uniform, 
he was did not get a full pension for disability. And the pension was so low, he could not possibly support himself. And he struggled for a number of years with this inadequate pension. Eventually, Congress changed the law wisely. And after that, uh, about a decade later, he had what might be called a more living uh, income. Uh, He was obviously a disabled person. Uh, He ended up being a fairly shrewd fellow. He bought rental property. His nephew, uh, Robert Young, would collect the rent for him. He's living in New York. He's living in New York in the Bronx. And he, um, and he, at one point, he ran a newsstand. He did that, um, and um, he owned a, he owned his home. He raised two children. Uh, he cared for his elderly parents. He was very proud of the household he was able to run. So, early in the years, his family described to me that he was very bitter about what happened. But after a few years, he let it go. He just ha- wasn't going to let this this hate fill him. And he uh, was a happy person. He was a kind person. He was a very generous person with his family. And, you know, one of my challenges in this book is is to not make him some abstract figure. He was a real person. He wasn't a perfect person, but he was a, he was really a martyr for the cause of civil rights. And eventually, he, though he never knew it, this is like one of the most remarkable things, he never knew his impact on Harry Truman and Judge Waring. But the effect of this incident on the two of them transformed America. The integration of the armed forces, Brown versus Board of Education. And one of the most remarkable discoveries I had about this as I've have this story sort of unfolded, I didn't start off with this story, it kind of came to me as I investigated it, was that in December 1948, Wade Swearing was invited to the White House by Harry Truman. Truman had just been reelected. Wade Swearing was the most reviled man in the White South. What do you think Harry Truman was doing? He was sending a message. He was standing on civil rights. And the discussion between the president and Judge Waring went like this. Uh, Judge, do you know the story of the blinded Negro sergeant from South Carolina? And Waring, Mr. President, I tried that case. That's how their discussion opened. I think, Richard, that is a wonderful way to, to wind up our story today, unless you have anything else you want to say to us. Well, it's been a delight to be here with you and a real honor to be on your program. Well, Judge Richard Gurgle, I want to thank you for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and today's journal was another foray into South Carolina's not-so-recent past, back to the 1940s and the days after World War II. It's a sad story in many ways, but the blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard, a decorated World War II veteran, led to changes in our state and our nation. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.